Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. It is with gratitude, and it is my great pleasure to welcome back to this show Dr. Jonathan Augustine. Jay, as he prefers to be called, was my guest back in June of last year on my 89th episode. In that interview, we discussed his book called To Reconciliation. Dr. Augustine reminds us, as the church, that we have been entrusted by our Lord with a specific ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. Jay helped us more fully understand what the meaning of that ministry involves, and especially how that ministry is inseparably related to justice. In this episode, we will be discussing Dr. Augustine's sequel to Call to Reconciliation, his new book, When Prophets Preach. If the first book is about the responsibility and ministry of the church, this new book is about the leadership, important, even necessary, to enable, empower, and motivate the church to engage in and seek to achieve that ministry. Well, welcome back, Pastor. Thank you so much for being with me today. It is an honor to be with you, David. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share. Well, you said that uh, this book is a sequel to Call mm-hmm. to Reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So how do you understand that? And uh, so tell us about how these two books fit together. Sure, sure. So my name is obviously Jay and not Luke, uh, but this is the two books are very much like the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, the sort of relationship that they have as one uh, leading directly into the other. Um, in the in the previous book, Call to Reconciliation, uh, it unpacked the concept of reconciliation really in a threefold context. There was salvific reconciliation, and if you if you can imagine, or if viewers can, listeners rather can imagine the cross. There was salvific reconciliation, which went right along, or which goes right along with the vertical axis of the cross. It is an individual up-down kind of thing, and it says that humanity is reconciled in its relationship with God through Jesus. Jesus obviously suffered, sacrificial suffering. He died so we all could live, but Jesus also lived. And the way he lived leads to the second type of reconciliation, which is social reconciliation. So if you think about the uh, the horizontal axis of the cross, uh, human beings are not only reconciled to one another, or reconciled to God through Jesus, but human beings are equal to one another because of Jesus. So the horizontal axis of the cross gives us the image of social reconciliation. We all are equal to one another. So often in America, our history and many of the problems and impediments that have been around race Uh, gender, other means used to marginalize, have prevented us from living out, if you hold these truths to be self-evident, that all, and I'm saying all, all people are created equal, not all all men, all people are created equal, then it has been ministers, it's been people who are concerned about the moral ethic of America, who have stood tall and exhibited what I called and called to reconciliation, civil reconciliation. That's an ability to hold government's feet to the fire, an ability to engage in what I will call now prophetic protest, and that image of prophetic protest, of speaking truth to power or speaking truth to institutions of power, is what led directly into the book When Prophets Preach. So 
prophetic leadership, which is a which is a, a synonym, if you will, for civil reconciliation. Uh, but the type of prophetic leadership we have seen exhibited by ministers, by concerned clergy persons, by concerned laity, uh, that is the very basis of what when prophets preach is all about. Well, now you talk about that um, one of the problems when prophets preach addresses uh, is that there are not enough pastors preaching prophetically today. So kind of explain that and why you think that's happening. Yeah, we, we are we are people, number one, I believe, are naturally comfortable in one domain, less comfortable in another domain, and maybe we'll gravitate away from a third domain. I'm using the number three because the book lifts up three domains of leadership. There is uh, the old paradigm of the, the prophet, the priest, the king, or if I can use non-gender specific language, I'll say the prophet, the priest, and the royal. That falls under, that is categorized as the Munus Triplex Doctrine. Some people say Munus Triplex Doctrine. Other people say the threefold office. When you think about Jesus's ministry, Jesus's leadership, he led perfectly in all three domains. But clearly, we as individuals will gravitate more so to one, less so than to the other, and probably pivot away from the third. If I can use myself as an example, when I think about prophetic leadership and what that means, I naturally gravitate to that. I come from a career or a background, rather, as a social justice attorney, very concerned about fairness and equity and opportunities for all God's children, whatever all means and all is all inclusive. So prophetic leadership is something that's very, very good for me. Um, I may I may gravitate away from priestly leadership, but others may gravitate to priestly leadership. I may gravitate away from a royal leadership. I think I'm good as a royal, too, though, but I may gravitate away from royal leadership. I'm saying that illustratively to say that today so many ministers don't want to say anything controversial. So many ministers don't want to ruffle any feathers. So it's 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 almost easier to go to the hospital to visit somebody to be the priest or to engage in priestly leadership than to stand up and to say, I have a problem with the local board of education banning certain books and, uh, and preventing resources and sharing in our community and engaging in prophetic leadership. So I find, and I think most ministers now will find, that there is a dearth of prophetic leadership in terms of who's standing up to literally or proverbially speak truth to power. Well, and you've already begun to talk on that, but kind of define prophetic preaching a little more clearly for um, one of the one of the quotes I use in the book is that it's the kind of the kind of preaching that can get a minister into trouble. Right. It's, it's, <laughs> it's risky. It's not. Yeah, it's not necessarily safe preaching. It's the kind of preaching that calls a thing a thing, as my mother used to say. Um, but more than anything, prophetic preaching is about uh, I categorize it. I build on other scholars works, but I categorize it as preaching preaching rather uh, that is that is socially determined but divinely inspired, uh, meaning it is truly the way in which God leads us to address the dominant crisis or series of crises, if you will, from an ethical perspective. Um, uh, but it is it is spiritually driven. Um, it is textually based, uh, but is it is socially determined. So it's very much responsive to circumstances. You may or may not be able to plan out, like with the liturgical calendar, you can plan out your preaching series. But when you're responding to circumstances, sometimes you can't anticipate those circumstances. You've got to respond in a prophetic way. So prophetic preaching is social justice preaching. Some people call it exodus preaching, but it's preaching that responds to social circumstances. Well, you quote Walter Brueggemann 
by saying that um, prophetic ministry has to do primarily, uh, or excuse me, that prophetic ministry has to do not primarily with addressing specific public crises, but with addressing both in season and out of season the dominant crises that is enduring and resilient. So talk about why that's important in your understanding of what prophetic preaching is. Sure. If I can use as an example a, a, I'll say contemporary, it's been ongoing, but, but, but a crisis is immigration. We clearly have had problems uh, uh, at the border. Uh, we've had problems uh, uh, systemically with how we treat those who are refugees, who are in our country, who have started to contribute meaningfully to society, who are paying taxes, who are supporting us economically or contributing, I should say, economically. Uh, but how we treat immigrants and how we how we allow immigrants to enter and refugees are a specific category of immigrants. I'm saying all of that not to get into the weeds, but I'm using all of that illustratively to say there is an underlying reason of why immigration has been such a problem. And I believe it is part and parcel because of the overall crises or the dominant crises. And that has been the subjective way we have been influenced to think by the narrative of Christian nationalism. And Christian nationalism for me then would be, uh, uh, to, to bring it home to Brueggemann, would be the dominant crisis, the ongoing crises. Um, I say address Christian nationalism, the conflation of cross and country uh, that is very hierarchical, uh, that says that uh, America was established as a Christian nation. It was not. Uh, that says that America's hierarchy at the time is the way America's hierarchy should always be, uh, which means White Anglo-Saxon Protestantism will be the rule of the day. Well, if you look at America through those lens or through that lens, that means then that our Jewish siblings really don't have a place. That means that our immigrant siblings certainly don't have a place, and it means that our minority citizens should have a lesser place at best. That is a root cause or the, or the ongoing crisis, if you will, that I think influences so many things in the body politics. So addressing Christian nationalism is really calling a thing a thing to be prophetic, and it calls out the root cause rather than just looking at a particular symptom. Well, in, in um, thinking about uh, how the church uh, is to be active, uh, you draw from uh, the, the uh, interactive dimensions of secular leadership Mm -hmm. which you list as direct, relational, and instrumental. Mm -hmm. So how do you think these categories are helpful? So in mirroring, and this is an attempt to reach uh, uh, lay members and perhaps relate uh, what, what most ministers may have studied as the Monist Triplex Doctrine or the Threefold Office, to relate it to more secular terms that people would probably encounter uh, in studying secular leadership or, or exploring the details of secular leadership. So I mentioned the prophet, priest, king, or the prophet, priest, royal. Uh, when, you, when you think about those terms that we lifted up, direct leadership is royal leadership. It is, it is the kind of leadership that takes charge, the kingly leadership, and says, follow me, I'm going in this direction, right? I, I think about that. I was an infantry officer for a while after college and before I went to law school, and the patron saint of the infantry is Iron Mike down at, at what was Fort Benning, Georgia. I don't know what it's called now, but down in Georgia. And Iron Mike would say, follow me, right? So that's the kingly leadership. That is direct leadership. 
relational leadership is really priestly leadership. It is conciliatory leadership. It's the kind of leadership that comes to console and the kind of leadership that provides uh, stability in time of crisis. But the instrumental leadership is prophetic leadership. Instrumental leadership sees a situation as it is, and it envisions something better. It envisions social change. It envisions building upon an existing paradigm to make one that's better and arguably one that's more inclusive to help America live out its creed of, of, of welcome and in, in, uh, uh, in building a beloved community, if you will. So the three uh, leadership dimensions there, direct, relational, and instrumental, each of them mirror something in the Manus Triplex doctrine of the prophet, the priest, or the royal. Well, you say that uh, one of the, or I guess the foundational question of the book is when does the church get political? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the church has been, is, and I believe will always be political uh, because the church was birthed in politics. Now, let me qualify that because that makes some people cringe. It makes some people smile. I am very clear, and as you know, and when prophets preach, I'm very clear in saying that politics is literally a word that enters the English lexicon. It comes from the Greek word polis or polis. It means affairs of the cities. It, it, it deals with issues of fairness and issues of equity. So politics should not be uh, uh, confused with being partisan. Being political does not necessarily relate to voting for team red or team blue or endorsing this particular candidate or that particular candidate. Not at all. Being political, when you go back and think about speaking truth to power, prophetic leadership is political leadership. Think about the ministry that Jesus led as a marginalized Jew, someone who was ethnically marginalized because of his religion and his culture uh, by a dominant Roman empire. Jesus was literally someone who spoke truth to power in the figure of Pontius Pilate and in the figures of others in authority, leading a, uh, a faith-based sect, if you want to think of it in that regard, leading a faith-based sect that sought equality and sought uh, a, um, a more egalitarian form of living. If that is not politics, I don't know what is. So Jesus' ministry was inherently political, which means the church was birthed in politics. Again, I want to be very clear in not misconstruing the two words politics and partisanship because Jesus was not wearing a red t-shirt and saying vote for this candidate. Jesus was not wearing a blue t-shirt and saying vote for the other candidate. Jesus was clearly concerned about affairs of the cities and fairness and equity and how he and his people as a marginalized Jew were being treated and how others were being treated under a diminutive power. Well, you in I guess in um, kind of comparing the uh, priestly role and the prophetic role, you also kind of talk about there, that there's a historic tension uh, between piety and politics. So, why do you think it, that is, and and is there a way to address that? You know, it, it, we address it through things like this. I'm thankful to be a guest on your podcast. I'm thankful that you took the time to read when prophets preach and thought it was good enough. And with all of the books that you read to, to have me back, right? We were, we were together before to talk about call to reconciliation. So information sharing is very important to debunk stereotypes, to debunk myths. Some people feel number one, 
uh, the church is a 501c3 or the church is a nonprofit entity, so I can't be involved in politics. I'm a lawyer. That's wrong. The church is supposed to be right. Really, the church is supposed to be involved in politics. By definition of the church is involved in issue advocacy. The church addresses issues. The church doesn't address specific candidates. So when the church is advocating for uh, more, more homeless shelters, when the church is advocating for better living conditions, when the church is advocating for uh, a shelter for battered women, those are inherently political matters that so many ministers will become involved in. Uh, but but there's a there's a fear that I shouldn't be political when a candidate comes and says, hey, I'm running for county commissioner. I'm running for Supreme Court justice. I wonder if you'd allow me to say say a word to your congregation. There's a there's a um, there's a there's a misnomer there. There's a there's a disconnect. Um, so I believe uh, 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 when we talk about piety, it should not it should not exist to the exclusion of politics. Uh, the two must go hand in hand. Dr. King often talked about, and I'm not quoting him, I'm paraphrasing, I'm quoting myself because I paraphrase him so often. So uh, the church cannot just be concerned with salvation in the kingdom to come, that's piety, but the church has also got to address social inequities in the kingdom at hand, that's politics. And again, if you think about the two images of the cross, the piety deals with the individualistic, the north-south axis of the cross, and the politics, the social engagement, the fight for equality, that deals with the horizontal axis of the cross. So it is an ongoing um, tension that many scholars have written about. I've cited several of them that have influenced me, uh, my read of their work, uh, but the church has got to do both. The church has got to be engaged in salvation in the kingdom to come, but also in addressing social inequities down here in the kingdom at hand. Well, talk a little more about uh, how the fact that you conceive of Jesus' ministry as being political and that you root uh, your prophetic concept of preaching in, in what he does. Absolutely. Um, I, will, I will say this, and I will always be grateful, number one, to the Reverend Dr. William Barber for the uh, uh, the image he sets in leadership, for the mentoring he has done in me, uh, done of me, and for the influence he plays. Um, he did a wonderful foreword in what I will call a sermonette to, um, to When Prophets Preach, where he unpacks uh, the pivotal text of the book, which goes right, I think, to the heart of your question. And if you, if you go to the Gospel of Luke, the fourth chapter, in the context of where Jesus is, Jesus reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah back in his home synagogue, starting at, at verse 18, verse 18 and 19 say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, that's preaching, release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. William Barber does an excellent job in unpacking in two or three pages what I spent a chapter in embellishing, uh, but this really is God sending an anointing through us to bring good news to the poor. That means those who are economically dispossessed, marginalized, pushed to the social periphery. Release of the captives. Perhaps we're talking about mass incarceration. Perhaps we're talking about a criminal justice system that works for some who can afford it, but it has not historically worked for others uh, who cannot. 
uh, recovery of sight to the blind. Perhaps we're talking about universal health care. Perhaps we're talking about more access to health care and the fights that go on in America uh, and contextualizing that today. Um, I guess what I'm suggesting is that this text, Jesus's inaugural sermon in dealing with the social circumstances that led to his ministry in responding, again, as we talked about before, prophetic preaching and prophetic ministry is often responsive to social circumstances and thinking about Jesus's station in life as a ethnically marginalized Jew, that initial call was political. Without question, it was political. It was not about piety. That was Jesus beginning his public ministry in a very political vein. So what I'm, what I'm suggesting there is then um, Jesus was political. If we are going to be Christians, we cannot have a truncated gospel uh, and deal only with piety and not with the politics. Uh, if we do, we're not fully living out a walking in the image of Christ. Well, if if one is to be a prophetic preacher, uh, you say that they had there are certain needs and also certain character that is involved in prophetic preaching. So, what are the needs and what is the character? I think most importantly, in terms of the character, um, uh, needs inevitably will rise. The environment will will necessitate things. Uh, the environment will call us to do things. Um, um, if I can use as an example, uh, pastoring during the pandemic, but specifically pastoring during 2020 uh, as an African-American pastor leading a historically black church and dealing with the realities of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, uh, those needs, that, that, that time period, those instances necessitated prophetic leadership and necessitated prophetic preaching with all of the dysfunction that was going on in America over the course of 2020. And quite frankly, I don't mean to be partisan here, but over the course of 2016 to 2020, all of the discord that was going on in America, that necessitated prophetic preaching. So to, so to, to move from the need and to talk about the character, uh, the character has got to be a person that's willing to engage in truth-telling. It's got to be a person that refuses to uh, simply put their head in the sand and say, I'm afraid to call a thing a thing and to talk about this. Uh, the, the biblical narrative tells us in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, so the, the same sort of marginalization we've seen for certain groups, be it racially in America, we've seen it ethnically with our Jewish siblings through the Old Testament. Uh, we've seen conflict. We've seen exile. Uh, through Babylon, we've seen uh, impoverished people pushed to the social margins. That's the nature of the history of Israel uh, through the biblical narrative. That certainly is the nature of what we see in so many who are dispossessed because of their social stance now. So truth-telling, a willingness to, to engage in, a, uh, in sort of a didactic read and bringing the Bible to life. Uh, as, uh, uh, as was often said, the preacher should preach with the Bible in one hand, and the newspaper in the other, right? Carl Bart, who I cite in, uh, in When Prophets Preach, uh, the, the character is somebody who's willing to engage in truth-telling. Well, the um, preacher that is preaching prophetically addresses a cultural framework, and you define that as a complex of explicit and implicit ideas, values, and myths through which a group of people and a culture perceive and navigate their social world. It includes beliefs about 
historical, identity, cultural uh, preeminence, and political influence. It also includes symbolic boundaries that conceptually blur and conflate religious identity with race and citizenship and political ideology. So kind of talk a little more about how that's addressed. Sure. So that is often addressed through prophetic preaching, and preaching will establish a culture uh, of a congregation. Oftentimes cultures maintain uh, or maintained uh, through different pastors, uh, and pastors have to have to uh, uh, help develop culture in spite of a pre-existing culture. And I've, I have been blessed as a quote-unquote social justice minister, I have been blessed to pastor two consecutive congregations that have been very concerned about social justice matters, social inequities. So if I were to say that there is anything uh, uh, that is that is consistent for me, uh, the hallmark of my ministry. I've served four congregations total, uh, and I think I've I think I've hit a stride. Uh, uh, praise the Lord at St. Joseph A.M.E. Church in Durham, where I'm blessed to serve. Um, but the culture we have established, the culture that wanted to exist, was on the fringe of of emerging. But I think we've 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 brought it together well. Is a culture of equality, and all must mean all because equal means equal. Uh, we are all God's children. So preaching plays a role in in helping to develop a culture that says uh, everyone is welcome at St. Joseph. That means regardless of whether you're male or female. That means regardless of your economic status, uh, whether you're college educated, whether you're illiterate, uh, whether you are from a rural part of a, of a place, whether you are from an urban area, whether you are uh, a bisexual, whether you are um, uh, questioning, whether you are, are what, whatever your social status is, re regardless of who you are, you are God's creation and the culture I hope to establish is always one of complete equality, that it doesn't matter so much who you are, it matters whose you are, that you are God's child. So that is that is the importance, I think, of establishing a cultural framework for belonging, a cultural framework for welcome and equality. Okay. Um, and, of course, Dr. King has had a profound influence not only on you but on most of us. Uh, mm -hmm. But you talk about that his prophetic preaching uh, was undergirded by a suffering servant theology mm -hmm. uh, that focused on the common good instead of individualism. Uh, and yeah. you, also, you also speak about that, that his, his conception has some components uh, to that. So talk about that for us. When you when you think about so this suffering servant theology is um is something that's really really influential or it was very influential uh, in the civil rights movement and Dr King as a leader of the movement exhibited it he wrote about it um, uh, it's not something regrettably that's as widely talked about as um as as the I have a dream speech for example um, but uh but King writes about the suffering servant theology unpacking it from Isaiah fifty three if I'm not mistaken. Um, it is a text that from the lectionary, from those those prescribed texts that come up every three years in the uh, in the liturgical calendar for preachers. It is a text that probably comes up, if I'm not mistaken, on Good Friday. Um, it's a text that mentions and I'm paraphrasing here. Um, you know, he he bore the brunt for us all uh, through his stripes. I am healed. Right. Um, it is it is messianic in that we believe it's describing Jesus, a, a foretelling of what will come, but the sacrificial suffering 
that the one will have for the masses, for the benefit of the masses, right? That theology is is very much about community opposed to the individual. It's very much about the individual being willing to make a sacrifice for the benefit of the community. So if you really trace that theology into action, uh, when when young students board Greyhound, college students board Greyhound and Trailway buses uh, to test a, a, a racial desegre- racial uh, uh, segregation in interstate commerce, uh, uh, the Freedom Riders I'm referencing, that's suffering servant theology. That's a way of saying this isn't about me, but it's about the greater good. Um, when you think about John Lewis, the late great John Lewis and others who assembled on March the 7th, 1965 on Bloody Sunday uh, to march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge as they were met by Alabama state troopers who uh, 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 certainly beat John Lewis till his skull was fractured and he had to go to Good Samaritan Hospital in Selma, Alabama, uh, beat others to death. Uh, the willingness of people to go out and to publicly engage in conduct that they knew without question uh, would, would lead to suffering, uh, but they were, they were willing to do that because it was not about them, it was about the greater good. That certainly was a theology that undergirded King's thinking and King's leadership, and it was a theology that was very, very popular at that time, uh, manifesting through songs, through Negro spirituals and the other that were, that were often sang in a call-and-response fashion, uh, but it's not something that is widely talked about as much today. Society has changed. I like to make a joke because I'm an Apple product person, and I'm going to say I'm an unpaid Apple product. I'm going to give them an advertisement here, I suppose, right? I, you know, Call me on my iPhone. I run every morning. I look at my Apple Watch. Uh, uh, email me at me.com, right? It's all about us. It's all about the individual now. But the suffering servant theology really, really uh, undergirds a much greater picture. So it's much more communal and much less individual. Well, when it comes to addressing, like you say, the fundamental question of when does the church get political, uh, you, you use Eric McDaniel's four criteria uh, to measure when a congregation should get political. Mm-hmm. So what, mm-hmm. are, what are those? Let me, let me lift up first. Dr. McDaniel is a dear personal friend. Um, he, is, he is a member of the faculty, the political science faculty at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, he's written a couple of different books. The most recent uh, deals with uh, calling out Christian nationalism, but the uh, but the book that uh, I cite him in uh, in When Prophets Preach is called Politics in the Pews, uh, and it's a University of Michigan Press uh, book. Um, the 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 four components really go well if there is a good match, and when I say match, my my lens uh, as a as a Methodist minister. Excuse me, my lens is the itineracy because pastors are literally sent for a season, for, for a year, uh, and you see if it's a good match, and we'll try it again the next year, right? So pastors move uh, from church to church in service, opposed to pastors that are probably, uh, you know, that serve in, in individual congregations much longer. So there's got to be a good match is the reason I'm using that word, right? The pastor, the congregation, the organization, and the environment, and when you think about that first, the pastor, to, to engage in politics, the pastor has got to be willing to be political. If I can use a brief example, it's election time now here, 2024 in North Carolina. Thank goodness for uh, the, the culture at St. Joseph AME Church. 
candidates have called, candidates will continue to call. Is it okay for me to say a word to introduce myself to the folks at your church? Absolutely. Come on. Two minutes we'll give you, please. We want you to be in that space. And I will oftentimes joke with the congregation and say, church is supposed to be about one-stop shopping. You should come and get the good news and come and get the local news too, right? This is, that's the kind of environment we want to create. So I'm a pastor who is willing to be political. The congregation, the congregation has got to be willing to engage, right? Some pastors don't want any part of politics. They don't want to be the prophet. They want to be the priest. Some congregations only want to engage in piety. They don't want to engage in politics. So I go back to my usage of the word match there. Those are the first two, uh, uh, two, two criteria. If they fit together well, if the pastor and congregation fit together well, you have the potential to be a quote-unquote political church or to make social change. Then the organization. The church is willing. The pastor is willing then the third criteria is organization. If the church has the resources to engage, I will give you an example of what I mean by resources. This is a very nonpartisan comment, so it has nothing to do with partisanship, but it has everything to do with politics. At St. Joseph AME Church, we habitually host souls to the polls, something we absolutely take pride in because politically we engage in voter advocacy encouraging everybody who wants to vote to vote, and we use our resources to help people in voting. That means the church bus, the church vans, we have drivers, we organize caravans, we invite people to come to church with us to say their names, to let us know who they are as we go caravan and vote together as a faith community. That sort of stuff is very important organizationally in, in becoming a political church or a politically active church, if you will. And the last thing I lift up again is the environment. Uh, um, when does the church become political? It becomes political when the environment necessitates political activity. Again, I lift up much of the horror we saw four years ago as an example. Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. I lift up much of the voter suppression that we have seen historically in North Carolina, but certainly over the course of the last 11 years now in terms of uh, 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 the wake of Shelby County v. Holder, the implementation of photo ID laws, targeted specifically at certain demographics to uh, uh, arithmetically reduce voter turnout in certain communities. Uh, with those sort of things going on in the environment, in my estimation, the church must be political. So when those four factors come together, according to, according to Dr. McDaniel, uh, from a theoretical perspective, according to me, from a practical perspective, you have the potential to be a church on the cusp of social change. Well, in being politically active, uh, you talk about uh, the three R's of reckoning, reconciliation, and repair. Yeah. So when I think about um, the chapter that really unpacks reconciliation, excuse me, really unpacks reparations and how the two go together uh, in When Prophets Preach, um, they, they really are inseparable. Um, when we think about reconciliation, obviously I've unpacked that to a certain extent, but I'll, I'll summarily say it's a it's an attempt toward human equality. Uh, it's a willingness to move on a journey, uh, not with the expectation of reaching a destination, uh, but it's a journey in moving toward human equality. 
So when one reckons with their social status and when, when one reckons with the past, they are giving a realistic account, no different than if I go out to dinner and I take someone out to eat, um, uh, if I order the most expensive this, the most expensive that, at the end of the eating period, whatever that is, when the bill comes, I've got a reckoning in arithmetic terms. I've got to reckon to settle my account. Well, America has had some problems with its account. As, as Martin Luther King Jr. famously said in the, in the March on Washington address, the I Have a Dream speech, uh, uh, he talked about the check that came back, uh, the Bank of America marked for insufficient funds, right? So, so there have historically been some problems that we've got to reckon with in terms of our past. In terms of moving to reconciliation, how do we make uh, a people equal? How do we live out the great creed? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all, says men, but all people are created equal. How do we reconcile us one to another, uh, 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 certainly from a Christian perspective, but, but from a social perspective? And then uh, repair, right? We have to recognize in reckoning uh, that there are some systemic inequities that have existed since the beginning of time. Uh, and I'll say beginning of time since 1619 in this context, when, when uh, um, forced labor was brought on the American shore uh, in the form of African peoples uh, who, were, who were subjected to the, to the involuntary institution of slavery. Uh, there have been some things that have never, ever been able to advance for social footing uh, because of that evil institution. And we see so many of those still here in the South. And because you and I are both in North Carolina, the markers of that are all over the place. So how do we repair that? One theory of repair uh, has been reparations and what that means in terms of a federal responsibility, the federal government's responsibility to make whole and to live out what it said it was going to do in terms of 40 acres and a mule, but what it never did. So what, what can reparations look like now? That's really a, a theoretical, but also a very practical discussion uh, that I would encourage readers to go through as they look at those concepts in the book. And thank you so much for lifting them up. Well, and, and kind of go into a little more uh, of your understanding about reparations and 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 the models that are that are good for that and and how we can go about correcting and yeah so so to make to 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 engage in reparations i think i read a book by a um i I have the honor of teaching as a consulting faculty member at duke divinity school so i'll say a fellow duke faculty member uh, uh sandy darity teaches at the uh the the school of public policy at the sanford school of public policy uh but sandy darity had a had a wonderful book um, uh, where he lifts up reparations in the context of being a proprietary term, like an exclusive term. Somebody should have the market on this term. It's not just generic. In other words, I hear some municipalities talk about, well, reparations, reparations. Uh, I hear others say, well, with the state's going to engage in reparations, the state should engage in reparations. When you really think about the culpability and capacity is the two things that are really a requisite, according to Darity, and I certainly adopt his his advocacy. The culpability, what put us in the situation where reparations are quote unquote necessary, and the quote unquote capacity to repair, to engage in a in a payment to restore, to attempt to make whole. That is the federal government. That is really the actions of the federal government. Um, so um, uh, when I drill down on what reparations really are and what they should be. It's a very nuanced argument. It's certainly, I mean, there are books and books and books and books and books that have been written about it. So I've, I've read enough to be smart enough about it to talk about it, obviously, right? 
but uh, but I think it is it is something that should be explored through a commission uh, empowered by the federal government in terms of eligibility, but all with the eye of attempting to make whole to engage in full reconciliation to attempt to make whole uh, based on the reckoning of the things that were done in the past. Well, in addition to reparations, uh, what other means of repair are there? So there are ways now systemically where our community is moving backward rather than moving forward. Uh, And I'll generically use the term politics, the welcoming of people. Our politics are often influenced, again, by Christian nationalism, and some scholars call it white Christian nationalism because of the hierarchical nature in which it places whiteness above other races and whiteness uh, 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 to the exclusion of other ethnicities. Let me take a moment to unpack two terms that I use in the book, which are not synonymous. There is there is racial discrimination and there is ethnic discrimination. And I want to lift up for just a moment the differences between race and ethnicity. Race is a social construct that is based exclusively on immutable characteristic. So if you see me, if listeners now say, well, this J. Augustine guy, he's, I'm going to see who he is. Let me Google his name, J. Augustine. You're going to see my images. You're going to see me as a black man because society has said someone with those features, those, those uh, uh, pronouncements, that person is black. This is what we're going to call it. It's the opposite of white, right? So r- discrimination based on race is based on immutable characteristics, the way somebody looks. When one engages in ethnic discrimination, however, it's much, much, much more nuanced it's a, it's a discrimination that, that can be based on geography. It can be based on culture. It oftentimes is based on religion. So I am very close friends, for example, with uh, 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 several, several people who are practicing Jews. I had the honor of preaching at a Shabbat service uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, when, when those friends are victim of discrimination and they look exactly like the people who are discriminating against them, That is not racial discrimination. That's ethnic discrimination based on religion. When we look at immigrants and when immigrants come from places, and I'll just keep the keep the line going in terms of of physical appearance. When immigrants come from places and they have facial features or features just like the majority composition of the United States, but they speak a little differently. And somebody says, where are you from? Well, I'm from Germany. I'm from Austria. I'm from Switzerland. I'm from wherever else. Pick another place then uh, uh, when they are discriminated against, as they often have been through the course of America's politics, uh, that is ethnic discrimination based on geography or based on national origin. So the two uh, uh, are two different things, race and and ethnicity is what I'm saying. The point I'm lifting up here to your question about what are some things we can do, we can change our perceptions because here we recognize or we should recognize we all are God's children and we should treat all people equally because if all means all, all has got to mean all. That's part of the beloved community that we lift up when we think about the the ongoing work of Martin Luther King Jr. and trying to build a space where people can come together and find commonality, not to be excluded because they're trans or because they're, they're bi, not to be excluded because of their social status, but to have full acceptance and full belonging. That is Uh, Those are some concrete ways in which we can engage in reconciliation because there's so many groups uh, that have been put to the social periphery and are outliers in our society. Well, to me, one of the uh, very creative and innovative parts of the book is, is your descriptions of how you are able to incorporate and, and make, um, uh, 
compatible is not the word I'm looking for, but that that also, uh, but intertwined uh, and 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 mutually supportive uh, of prophetic preaching and uh, the liturgical year. And it works well. It it works really well. It has worked well. I will share with you from a personal slash professional since I'm a pastor perspective, uh, but I believe it works well from a from a theoretical and from a theological perspective as we attempt to engage diverse communities and bring them to the love of Christ, to the love of God, through a welcoming environment that we know as the church. Um, for me, the, the, the liturgical calendar uh, begins uh, usually the last, either the last Sunday of November or the first Sunday of December with the Advent season, and obviously it ends a year later. So during the course of that liturgical calendar, you've got the blessing of Advent, you've got the Christmas season, you've got the Lenten season, uh, you've got Pentecost, you've got, you know, so many times of uh, celebration, of lament, uh, a balanced liturgical diet. I get that. But you also have the opportunity as a pastor to incorporate the secular calendar into your liturgical calendar to make for a place of holistic welcome. In other words, uh, January or coming in December, moving into January, yes, it is It is the Advent season, but in my tradition, we will also celebrate a watch night service, which goes December 31st, which goes back to uh, Freedom's Eve before the reading of the Emancipation Proclamation for, for those who were enslaved. We will, we will have a celebratory service uh, to think about liberation and the liberating word of God. I lifted up uh, Jesus's words there from, from uh, Luke 418 and 19 before that's liberating that's not constraining we'll have a service focused on liberation and celebration to move into the new year um obviously there is uh, uh january there's the martin luther king jr holiday to talk further about uh, a champion a prophetic leader month of february as you and i were talking offline about earlier before i think we began recording uh february is a time of black history month march is a time for women's history month these are times to celebrate and be inclusive with people that are in the pews. But I believe if you're inclusive enough, you'll get some other people who are not in the pews to come and sit in those pews because they want to be a part of something that's inclusive. Um, if I can also highlight some other times of the secular year that I think are very important to lift up. June is Pride Month in America. What better time to affirm and to celebrate so many of our siblings that have been pushed to the periphery? Uh, October is... Uh, breast, excuse me, it's breast cancer awareness. October is also domestic violence awareness. I go back to awareness month and I go back to um, my, my saying of the church being a place, not just of the good news, but the church should be a place of one-stop shopping, right? Where you get the local news and everything else too. But um, in that regard, I want to empower people who have been pushed to the social margins to know that the church hears them, to know that the church is a place of welcome, and if we are systemic about it with having a calendar that is organized around the theory of the theology of welcome, uh, then, then we're better for it. And that's an opportunity to incorporate the secular and the sacred to do good for God's children. Well, you have written two powerful and very helpful and important books that have given us uh, a lot of resources uh, to be able to incorporate into our own ministries. And so I'm grateful, uh, not only for what you're doing in your own church, but that you've taken the time uh, to put into print uh, both of these books. 
and 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 provided them for us so that we are able to to build on those. So thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And the pleasure has been mine. They truly have been labors of love, but I appreciate your receptiveness and I appreciate this platform to share. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your-